welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Our sermon text this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. That's page 991 in the Pew Bible. Over the next seven weeks, we will be looking at what I like to call Bishop Father Paul's letters to Father Timothy, okay? Father Timothy, his true child, his beloved child, who is the parish priest in Ephesus, all right? So most of letters, Paul's letters in the New Testament are written to whole congregations, right? We, we think of Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, these kinds of letters, Corinthians. But these pastoral letters are very personal letters. They're very personal. From father to son, his true child, his beloved child, Paul writes about the nitty-gritty details of how to be an overseer or a pastor in the house of God. But this isn't a pastor's conference. This isn't a pastor's conference. Why preach First and Second Timothy to the whole gathered church, the whole congregation? Because anyone who runs a house knows it is better that everyone knows what everyone's job is all the time so that we're not overstepping all the time. And so it, it benefits us all to know how the whole household is running. Yes, even my three-year-old in my home. It's good for her to know her place in the home. Paul writes to Timothy about a few people in his church who are making Timothy's life very difficult. And so to summarize a bunch of pretty tedious scholarship, these persons within the church are not so much harmful as they are irrelevant. They're not so much pernicious and, uh, and harmful teachers. They're just kind of busybodies, okay? They're not so much like the kid who is actively trying to burn down the house. They're more like the household pet who is active, who, who can't stop pooping and peeing on the carpet, okay? So the metaphor of the house continues to go, okay? They're, they're mostly irrelevant. They don't know their place in the home. They devote themselves to silly myths, Paul says, to endless speculations, vain discussions. They are in a habit of always making confident assertions about all kinds of spiritual matters. It sounds a little bit like me. Rather than living a godly peaceful, and quiet life of devotion to Jesus. Here's the funny thing. If you pick up and read commentaries written in the last 200 years on First and Second Timothy, they don't listen to any of this. It, it is almost all discussion and debate. There's, there's, always, there's always a controversy and a criticism. This isn't a controversial letter. It's not a controversial letter. It's a personal letter from a father to son. And so our reading this morning from chapter one is perhaps the most personal paragraph in all of Paul's writings. He uses I or me 12 times at least in my count, okay, 12 times in this paragraph, right around this paragraph, as we read and preach these letters over the next two months, let's not forget that this is a deeply personal letter. It's, it's meant to be personally read. Paul's personal testimony here in chapter one sets the tone for the rest of the letter. 
He, he, it sets the tone, and this is very important for you and for me to remember. You see, we all know that hearts and minds are changed in deep personal relationships, not on Twitter. I think, I think we all know that, right? Do you, do you know that? We, we know that television debates and long-form intellectual podcasts or overly complicated theological sermons, they don't really ultimately change us. We don't change on our morning commute or once a week with a 30-minute sermon. We change in restored fellowship around the Lord's table in the church, around dinner tables in our homes and in the community, in conversation with friends who become our family in Christ. This is Paul's personal testimony. So what do I mean by Paul's personal testimony? Paul isn't talking about work. When we, when we give our testimonies, we very often start there. He's not talking about work or his kids or his hobbies or where he grew up. The root word for faith in this paragraph is repeated nine times in this paragraph. This is Paul sharing his personal faith with his son. How often, fathers, have you done that with your sons and your daughters? We talk about what we love. We tell stories about the people that we devote our lives to. All of Paul's life revolved around the risen Lord Jesus. Even before he believed that Jesus was the Lord, the God of the universe, Saul's life, remember, Saul's life revolved around Jesus in zealous unbelief, anti-faith, anti-faith, against the way of Jesus. And then by grace, Jesus knocked him down off his high horse and saved his soul overpowered him, overflowed into his life and gave him a new name, a new name, Paul. What does your life revolve around? Is Jesus the turning point of your life? You don't need a dramatic conversion like the Apostle Paul to center your life on Jesus. Is Jesus just an accessory, an occasional weekend activity? What do you talk about all the time? The current of my soul, let me be a little honest with you here this morning, the current of my soul and the raging river of my life flows away from Jesus so naturally. Most of us, most of the time, we don't spontaneously talk about our faith in Jesus because most of the time we are drifting downstream. Sunday morning worship is not even a thought for most of our friends and neighbors and coworkers. And for most Christians, Sunday morning worship is optional. It's optional. My weekend is just that. It's my weekend. It's me time, family time. But even faithfully swimming upstream one or two hours a week, about 52 hours a week in the year, that will not keep you afloat. That will not keep you afloat. Weekly communal devotion to Jesus cannot be optional. Daily, moment-by-moment personal and communal devotion to Jesus cannot be optional if we want to swim upstream against the tide of the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
of our own inclinations, our own desires. So this is a very deeply personal letter, and it has been a shot across the bow of my life this week. If you were to walk into any English church in the 16th century, you would walk into the nave, which is Anglican for where you're sitting right now, okay? The nave. You would walk into the nave and you would look up the aisle and you would see an altar and then you would see this big arch, this thing called a chancel, right? Anglicans have a fancy word for everything, okay? The chancel and above this chancel in the 16th century, you most likely in most parishes would would have seen a painting of Jesus as judge. Jesus as judge throwing some people into the arms of demons and a few into the arms of angels, If you're anything like me, comparing your life to the radically faithful Apostle Paul feels a lot like walking into a medieval sanctuary with Jesus as judge looking down over you in condemnation. Does hearing that testimony about Paul's constant devotion to Jesus make you feel like a bad Christian? Does it? I feel really, really bad, certainly in comparison to Paul, but even just looking at myself, even if I'm not playing the comparison game, no comparisons, just me, all I feel is my wretched heart, my pointless devotion to distractions, being a rebel against divine order. So into the darkened imagination of this 16th century England, Bishop Thomas Cranmer Remove the paintings of Jesus as judge from above the chancel, above the altar. And he put up a painting of Jesus as good shepherd. This painting you see right over here on the wall. Jesus as the good shepherd. Jesus, the healer of your wounds. Jesus, the lifter of your head. Jesus, the savior of your sin-soaked soul, as we heard in the psalm this morning. Bishop Cramer didn't just change the artwork on the wall. He spoke a better word into the darkened imaginations of people just like you and me. You cannot cooperate with God's grace to achieve salvation. According to Cranmer, that would be the ready way unto destruction. The ready way unto destruction. You see, the gospel message entrusted to Paul by Jesus, entrusted to Timothy by Paul, entrusted to Timothy by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, guarded and kept by faithful priests, grandmas, Bishops, moms, dads, orphans, monks, all the way down to you and me today. Bishop Kramer didn't simply change the artwork. He returned to the gospel entrusted to him, passed down to him. And here is the comfortable words. Here is the gospel according to 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 1 and verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes this, The saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy. It's it's worthy of all of your faith, of all of your belief, and deserving of full acceptance. And what is that saying? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So two simple questions that I want to answer in closing. Who is the gospel for? 
This is a little bit of a duh sermon, people, okay? This is a little bit of a not very creative sermon. Who is the gospel for, and how then shall we live? So first, who is the gospel for? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. sinners. There you go, you got it. The glory of God is to love the unworthy, or as St. Augustine said, God does not choose anyone who is worthy, but in choosing him, renders him worthy. Renders him worthy. This is not a complicated message. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You, me, blasphemers of God, Paul says persecutor of the saints, insolent opponents of Jesus, the lawless, disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and for any other rebellion against the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of it. For all of those people, the gospel is not for the just. The gospel is not for the righteous, but for sinners. Who is entrusted with keeping this gospel, with guarding this gospel, proclaiming these comfortable words to the next generation and to the next and to the next? The answer is the same. Sinners. Sinners, you and me, your number one qualification. If you, if you get into this letter, the fullness of this letter, there's a lot of lists. There's a lot of things to talk about and qualifications. Your number one qualification, Christian, in life and in ministry is that you are a sinner saved by grace alone through faith alone. By grace through faith. You don't have to be clever You don't have to speak with all wisdom or authority. You don't have to be really good at fasting. And you certainly don't have to be a preacher to proclaim the gospel. When you lie down and when you get up, when you walk, when you work, when you eat, write it on your forehead, write it on the front door of your house, write it down on your heart. If you are a great sinner, you are qualified to talk about the great Savior, Jesus. So let me say a quick aside. I, I, I contemplated marking this whole part out, okay? So I'm just going to read it so I don't go on too long. There's a lot of talk today inside and outside the church about brokenness. About brokenness. Nothing is moral anymore. Everything is medical. Everything can be fixed. In the church, more and more often each day I hear this, that the gospel is for broken people in need of healing, not for sinners in need of atonement. So this is not an either or. Hear me, Christian. This is not an either or. We need healing. He is our healer. We are broken. Not everything is a specific result of my personal sin against Yahweh God, against Jesus. I live in a broken world and the effects of the broken world affect us. But our language matters. Our language matters. 
Jesus absolutely heals brokenness, but his broken body and his shed blood atones for sin, for sin, for our active rebellion against God. So if we eliminate sin from our gospel, we eliminate the cross of Christ. So that was my aside. The gospel is for sinners and our language matters. The way we speak about this matters. So who is the gospel for? It's for you, sinner. It's for me, sinner. And how then shall we live? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I am the foremost. If you live every moment of your life as, you, if, as if you are the worst, if you are the greatest sinner in the room, then Christ will always and forever be the greatest Savior in the room. Let me say that again. If you live every moment of your life as if you are the greatest sinner in the room, then you have every opportunity to talk about Christ, who is the greatest Savior in the room. This is the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul. Not that he was the chief of sinners. Not that this was his former life, but that he is presently the foremost sinner. The least of the apostles, he says elsewhere. Unworthy to be called an apostle, he says of himself. John Chrysostom in the fourth century says it like this. If you have sinned and God has pardoned your sin, receive your pardon and give thanks. Receive your pardon and give thanks, Christian. But do not be forgetful of your sin. It is not that you should fret over the thought of it, but that you may school your soul not to grow lax or relapse again into the same snares. Man, I would have loved to be here in John Chrysostom's sermons, man. Those are, those are great sermons. Paul says to us, his sons and daughters in Christ, look at me as an example. I have nothing that I did not receive by divine mercy, so then... I preach Christ. My beloved son and daughter, you do not have anything that you did not receive by divine mercy. Therefore, preach Christ. If you feel like the worst Christian this morning, you're in the right place. You're in good company. If your continual self-assessment is that you are a great sinner, then you have a continual opportunity to redirect your heart and your speech to the boundless and overflowing mercy and grace that is revealed in Christ. Today is the day to talk about this grace poured out in your life. Today is to live your life as an example of this grace in your life. Great sinners have plenty of opportunity to change the topic of conversation to Jesus, the great Savior. Did you sin against your children, children driving to church this morning? My wife is battling that temptation right now. Humbly repent to your kids and talk about Jesus. Have you been nursing a grudge against a brother or sister for whom Christ died? Humbly repent, as we're going to say in the liturgy, humbly repent. Go and make peace with him or her in the passing of the peace before you come to this fellowship table, before you come to this meal. 
I received mercy for this reason, Paul said, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christ Church, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.